passage is from Revelation chapter 1, 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the, the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sh sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rachel, uh, for reading God's word. Uh, today we have a, a special guest speaker uh, among us to share God's word, and it is my joy today to introduce uh, Pastor Kimberly Lamb. Uh, she, I believe, came here a few times to preach. I think it was downstairs um, before we came up, so it was a long time ago, so it's great to uh, have her back in our community to share God's word today. I'm uh, just going to give a quick uh, introduction. Uh, Kimberly is, uh, was born and raised in Regina in Saskatchewan, and uh, she came here in October 2017. Uh, she uh, started pastoring. Uh, she's currently a, pastor, a youth pastor at Burnaby Alliance Church, and she's uh, been doing it for five years now. Uh, she started in 2017 uh, and continuing on. Um, and today she also has her family with her here. Her husband's name is Sing Yu, and uh, she has her uh, uh, son, whose name is Cohen, uh, 17 and a half, mo half months. And uh, she just told me today that she is uh, pregnant with her second. Uh, so something to celebrate with. Uh, so uh, without further ado, I just want to invite uh, Pastor Kim uh, to come up. Good morning, LLC. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, do you not usually respond back to that? Um, but yeah, I'm so glad to be here. Uh, yeah, the last time I was here, you guys were in the basement. It was all like, you guys got the cool lights going and the delicious coffee. I was like, man, this place is awesome. It's like super chill. But now you guys have upgraded to the sanctuary, which is awesome, just to see, to, to come back and see how you guys have grown. And um, the last time I was here was pre-COVID. Last time I was here, Howard was not married. And he wasn't Pastor Howard, so that was a while ago. Um, but yeah, I have a son, his name is Cohen, that was, that, a pastor's kid named Cohen is probably familiar to you, I think, because I 100%, I genuinely stole it from Doug and Jess, like, that is actually where I got the name Cohen from, I was, like, there are so many cute girls' names, 
like so many. And then I had a hard time finding a boy's name. Most of our, the names we had were based on NBA players because Singyu loves uh, NBA. And to, to remember his name, it's Singyu a song. That's like an easy thing. And so, yeah, I was driving, and then I think I was like just thinking about the Wongs, and I was like, Cohen! That is so cute. And so I, I messaged uh, uh, Doug, and I was like, hey, can I take your name for our son? And so lo and behold, that is the story of my son's name, I guess. So from my understanding, you will all be starting a new sermon series on the book of Revelation. And your theme for this upcoming year is returning to our first love. And so I actually, in preparation for my sermon, I listened to like most of your sermons from the beginning of the year, and I realized that I don't, I don't think Doug or Howard had talked about this yet. So I hope it's okay that I spoil this. Um, I kind of like, I had already prayed and written most of my sermon by the time I realized this. And so I was like, oh, it's kind of too late to change this. And my sermon's pretty much centered around that phrase, returning to our first love. But um, yeah, so this phrase, like, oh, so one thing I'll, I'll say is wait to hear from them, the heart behind that phrase. That is what my sermon is going to be kind of centered around. So this phrase, returning to our first love, the theme of your year, is taken from one of the letters, the, church of, the letter to the Church of Ephesus in, in Revelations chapter 2. And, and it's, John is the author of the, the book of Revelation, and he writes this letter on behalf of Jesus. And so the question then is, what is first love referring to? Uh, when I was doing research on this, most scholars are actually quite divided. It, it, is it referring to love towards Jesus, to return to your first love with a capital F, capital L, or is it love in general? A first love that the church of Ephesus had at that initial conversion, characterized by, by passion, by zeal, by joy, filled with fervor, grace. And it's actually both of those understandings that I'll be addressing today. To return to your capital F, capital L, first love, and to return to loving others like Jesus, including especially love of the church. Because you see, the idea of struggling to love the church is something that I think is in the heartbeat of many Christians and at this time, including myself, uh, due to the last few years. There's a, a disillusionment, a frustration, a grief, a lament, an anger caused by many factors. One of them being the uncovering of unmarked graves of thousands of Aboriginal children which is a widespread systemic abuse, annihilation, and cover-up of an entire people group done at the hands of believers in the name of evangelism. Then we have the years of political stratification where evangelical Christians supported a person where, where hatred, especially to the marginalized, was a major part of their message. And we would even see the same people commit treason in their name. A friend of mine actually lives, she lived in America for, for a little bit for school. 
and she told me that she had heard numerous sermons from numerous churches in support of Trump. And that was like their gospel message. In these two years, we've also seen Christians uh, refuse the vaccine or ignore governmental mandates out of a feeling of standing against religious oppression. There's also the various abuse and failures to protect the, the victims of that abuse by renowned church leaders, one of them it being Rabbi Zacharias. And this doesn't include the wounds that we've experienced at our own local church. Early on in my pastorship, and I actually talked about this, I think, in this, the sermon I preached previously. Um, oh, sorry, early on, it says, that's for later. Early on in my pastorship, I had attended a meeting, actually, um, of English pastors from Chinese Alliance churches. And at that meeting, but one of the things that came up was the divisiveness of the Chinese church. And the question it was, like, how can us English congregations thrive in an intercultural, intergenerational setting? And so what I gathered from these pastors who are much wiser and who've been doing this much longer than me was that there's been countless meetings, countless conversations, countless workshops, countless research on this question for years. And for those of you who grew up in the Chinese church, Lord's Love being one of them, like it, ha it has its roots in a Chinese church. And you guys still are a multi-congregational, multilingual church. Perhaps you've experienced this same disillusionment, these same questions, asking what is the longevity and the effectiveness of the Chinese church in Canada? I've actually had people come up to me and say to me, you know, there's, there's no future for the Chinese church. It's going to die out. So all of that leaves us to returning to our first love, both meanings of the phrase. How do you love a church with zeal, joy, grace, when it's filled with sinners and broken people? And that question's intimately tied with the other question, that is, who is Jesus? So I'm going to, please pray with me. Lord, we want to pray right now that you give us illumination of your word, that you're the one who gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, the mind to truly understand, that we are blind without your empowerment. And so, Lord, we just pray that you reveal yourself to us, that you give us divine revelation. We're not asking for some head knowledge here. We're asking for life-changing heart knowledge, that you speak into the soul of every single person here, that you magnify yourself in their lives. And I pray that your love just fills each person here as they, they listen. That Christ, that they get a clear understanding of who Christ is as they listen. And I just pray for um, yeah, your empowerment of me as well. May you guide me and use me to bring you glory and you only. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess I stand over here. <laughs> okay. So before I dive deep into this passage, I just want to give credit and like not plagiarize um, to Kevin DeYoung, who I'm going to fully admit I 
I copied the, the climatic line of my sermon from one of his. I just felt like he put this theological truth in such a profoundly perfect way, life-changing way, that I just had to be shared. And so I'm just going to give him credit for that. But okay, so what we had just read is Rachel was the reader. Was that right? Rachel. So what Rachel had just read for us is a description of who Jesus is, our supposed-to-be first love. And it's not literally what he looks like, but these are more descriptions and more statements of who he is. So then the question is, how, what do these verses say about who our Jesus is? So in verse 10, actually, what we immediately read is that when Jesus speaks, his voice is loud like a trumpet. And then later in verse 15, it is described as like a roar of many waters. His voice is loud. It's powerful. Massive, fast rivers with plenty of rapids, they're not quiet. As it cuts through the earth and the rocks and other obstacles, you can almost feel how powerful the river is, purely just by its sound. I've been on hikes, and I'm, sh I'm sure many of you have living in BC, where I looked over the edge towards the rushing river below, and I would get, like, goosebumps. Because I know that if I fell into that river, I'd just be swept away and I would die. And this is Jesus' voice. Jesus' voice is like that of a roar of many waters. And at that time of writing, at the time of, that John was writing this, one of the main modes of transportation was by boat. The ocean is consistently seen in the Bible as a deadly and chaotic place. And why? Because it's a deadly and chaotic place. Even with all of our advanced technology, the deadliness of the sea is not lost on us, let alone back then. A really popular verse, let hope be an anchor for my soul in Hebrews 6. Like that, the anchor is life and death. Imagine for these people, without that anchor, they'd be floated out to the sea and then they could die. There wasn't GPS, there wasn't radio. This is what the ocean meant for these people. This is what waters meant for these people. Even for John, he was isolated on an island. He'd be looking out at this deadly chaotic sea when writing this description of Jesus. He knew what he wasn't doing. What he was saying is that Jesus' voice isn't weak or timid. It's powerfully fearsome. And then in verse 13, John says he's like a son of man. This doesn't speak into his humanity. It's a statement of his divinity. Jesus refers to himself 90 times as the Son of Man, and it's actually a reference to Daniel 7, when in a vision, Daniel sees the, the Son of Man being given authority, dominion, glory, and a kingdom by the Ancient of Days, who is the Father. The, in this vision, the Son of Man is divine figure, given an everlasting dominion, and who has a service of all people, all nations, all languages. You see, when Jesus is called the Son of Man, he isn't saying that he's human, he's saying that he is God. And continuing on verse 13, he wears a long robe, a golden sash. This is the clothing of the high priest described numerous times in Exodus and Leviticus. You see, Jesus himself said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that he is the ultimate high priest. He is everything that the priesthood in the Old Testament is and more. 
Hebrews 7 says that Jesus is of an eternal priesthood in that it was built on an indestructible life. You see, Jesus is a better priest because his sacrifice isn't some earthly imperfect animal, but it's a perfectly, completely perfect heavenly lamb of incalculable worth. Hebrews 8 says that Jesus is the ultimate mediator between man and God because he doesn't work in a temple here on earth. He works right next to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly throne room. Continuing on, his hair is like white as wool and snow because he's utterly pure, utterly divine. He's set apart in his righteousness. The upper limits of our imagination cannot capture Jesus' righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire because he has the eyes that pierce darkness. He has eyes according to Proverbs 15.3 that sees the evil and the good. He has eyes which according to Psalms 98 sets our iniquities before him and our secret sins are in the light before his presence. He has the eyes according to Job 28.24 that sees the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Nothing is hidden from him. There's no evil he doesn't see. There's no good he doesn't see. There's no heart he doesn't see through. His eyes are like a fire because it's also from what he sees, where he separates the wheat from the chaff. It is what he sees that he purifies like gold. He sees everything. His feet, they're like burnished bronze, or, or in verse, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace in this translation. John is referring to the hardness metal takes on upon, upon being refined in the furnace of a blacksmith. Jesus' feet is strong enough to trample down his enemies before him. He is stable. Nothing can topple him. We say we're in a war, but his enemies don't stand a chance. His face is like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. This is the same face, the same glory that was so powerful. Moses had to be protected inside of a mountain with God's own hand covering him. And even then, Moses still couldn't look at him face to face. This is his face. This is his glory. It's the same face that shone like a sun in Matthew 17 during the transfiguration when Jesus was revealed for who he truly was before Peter, James, and John. And what happened, they all immediately fell face down in ter terror. It's the same face that when Isaiah looked upon it, he was convicted of his own cleanliness, uncleanliness, and in terror he cries, woe to me. And it's only by an intervention from God that he was relieved of his own shame. Continuing on, G Jesus, out of Jesus' mouth, came a sharp, double-edged sword. In fact, in Revelations 20, verse 15, where this is where Jesus is depicted as the victorious rider on the white horse. It's a powerful image. John also says, coming out of the mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Jesus' weapon is a sword that comes out of his mouth. Why? It's because his weapon is his words. It's this same voice that healed the lame when it told them to stand up and walk. It's the same voice that fed 5,000 people when he prayed blessing upon the food. It's the same voice that freed a man 
from thousands of demons. This is the most epic story. It's one of my favorite stories of Jesus, where you have this Jesus who purposely crossed a sea, calmed that sea. This is after a, a day of a ministry, crossed the sea, entered Gentile land. How do we know it's Gentile land? There's pigs. Purposely just to free this man. And this man, he has been bound by thousands of demons. The demons say their name is Legion. Why? It's a militaristic term. Legion, an army. This guy is bound by an entire army of demons. They, the townspeople tried binding him up in chains. He would break them. They did all these things. Nothing would work. So eventually they just isolated him inside of a graveyard. He would turn chains to powder. And the moment that Jesus' boat lands on sea, or lands on shore, this guy, empowered by an entire army of demons, comes up and falls at his feet. And then how does Jesus defeat this entire army? He doesn't do anything crazy. All he says is, get out. That is the power of Jesus' voice. This is his weapon. An entire army defeated with a single sentence. This is the same mouth that in Revelations 20, where all of the righteous and unrighteous will be set before him, and he's going to sit on his great white throne, and he's going to declare judgment, where the righteous will be brought into eternal life, and the unrighteous, alongside the great adversary, the great beast, the dragon, the anti-trinity, they're going to be thrown down into the lake of fire. His voice is his weapon, because that is how he's going to give out judgment. In verse 18, it says that Jesus has the keys of death in Hades. You see, the traditional view of hell, the, the view that I grew up with, is that Satan will be in charge when, we get, when, when people get sent to hell. It is my belief for the longest time. It was, this is the thing that is depicted in media, even in some religious art. But it isn't Satan who holds the keys to hell. It's Jesus. What we read in Revelation 20 is that Satan doesn't go to hell to rule. He goes to hell to be tormented. It's not Satan who has the authority over who gets to go into hell. It's Jesus. It's not Satan who has the authority to judge. It's Jesus. Matthew 10, verse 28 says, Fear not the one who can kill your body but can't kill your soul, but fear him who can kill your body and soul in hell. Do you know who, who, who it's, this verse is talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Jesus was saying this about himself. It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to be in hell tormenting you. No, it's going to be hell because this is where Jesus will not be. Hell is hell because it's utterly apart from God. And God is light. He is life. He is love. He's joy, peace, goodness, kindness, compassion. Hell is going to be utter physical, spiritual, mental, emotional separation. And so the righteous go to be eternally united to Jesus, and the unrighteous with the adversary are going to go to hell to be eternally separated from him. According to 20 verse 10, to be tormented day and night. It's Jesus who has the keys to Hades. It is he who has the authority to open and close that door. 
You see, Jesus is the one who has the eyes to see all. Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and earth with the keys to heaven and hell. Jesus is the one who speaks out that judgment. And this is what the Bible teaches. He is the first, he is the last, he's, the, he's before and at the end of all things. He's fully sovereign, fully, not, fully knowing. He is powerful. He is the I am. This is who our Jesus is, and he is terrifying. Our God is terrifying. John sees Jesus, and he instantly falls down. It's the same phenomenon that is repeatedly, that repeatedly happens when people encounter God's glory in the Bible. They fall face down, simply not just out of fear. And it's because God's glory is terrifyingly powerful. It is so glorious, so significant and weighty that it defies the law of physics. It's heavy. In fact, the Hebrew's word for glory is kavod, uh, which is the exact same word for, for heavy and for obesity. And I, I don't think the ancient Jews who chose this word did it by accident. I know, I think it's because they've experienced God's glory his presence, that it isn't just figuratively weighty, but that it's weighty. What happened to John in our passage also happened to Daniel in Daniel 8, Daniel 10. It happened to Peter, James, and John during the transfiguration when Jesus revealed his glory. It happened to Paul actually on the road to Damascus. It even happened to the guards who were arresting Jesus. Read it closely, Jesus says, I am he, they fall to the ground. Over and over, when people encountered God in his glory, they fell to the ground because of his kavod, because of his glory, and because of fear. I have a friend in Calgary, and she told me this story of her and her ex-boyfriend. She had been with him for many years, and they were both Christians. But pretty early on into their relationship, they were sexually immoral. And so after one of these nights, uh, a few years into the relationship, they had sex again. And she was feeling all of this remorse and guilt when all of a sudden she swept up in this vision and she finds herself actually at the throne room of God. And she said she, she dared not look up. She said she threw herself to the ground and all she could think of doing was making herself as small as she can. God's glory was so immense. His, his holiness was so radiant. When I asked her, what did it feel like being in God's presence? I still remember what and how she said it. She said, I felt like I was going to die. She said she felt exposed, the very essence of her being before him. She felt the physical weightiness of his holiness, a crushing, suffocating presence, so utterly glorious that it defies the law of physics and has an unbearable weight to it. She says she saw her own sin through his eyes and was repulsed, and she begged for God's forgiveness. And then she felt his forgiveness wash all over her. Instead of feeling like she would be crushed to death by the sheer weight of his glory, all she could feel now was the ecstasy of being in his loving presence. She said all she could do was cry out, Jesus is the Lord of all, over and over. 
This is who our Jesus is. This is who our first love is. He is more terrifying than anything else in creation. But the greatest comfort in that is our God is not terrifying to us, but God is terrifying and he is for us. Jesus is terrifying and he is to be feared. But the moment John collapses in our passage, Jesus says, fear not. Jesus is terrifying and he is for us. In Matthew and in Daniel, when, the, when Daniel falls to his face, when Peter, James, and John fall to their face, out of the magnitude of his holiness, the life-threatening intensity, Jesus instantly says, fear not. He is terrifying, and he tells us, fear not. God is not terrifying to us, but for us. In our passage in verse 12, the very, very, very first thing that John actually sees isn't, is, isn't Jesus, but actually the seven golden lampstands. And he goes on to say that in the midst of those lampstands is the Son of Man. And what we later learn in verse 20 of our passage is that the lampstands are the seven churches that John and Jesus' behalf writes letters to in chapters 2 and 3. It's a profound picture because what you will all be learning about in, these, in the subsequent sermons that are to come is that five of these seven churches were not in a good place. Some of these churches were in such a bad place that Jesus is warning them in this letter that if you do not repent, I'm not only going to reject you, I'm not only going to remove you from my presence, but I'm actually going to work against you. You see, the issue that these churches face are not unlike what we see in the modern-day church here. There's lukewarmness. There's being dependent on financial security over security in Christ. There's a tolerance of idolatry, which is at the heart of it, anything that has a priority and value in your life that only God should have. There's a tolerance for immorality. There's a church, even a church who's busy doing all the right church things, but are spiritually dead. And despite this, despite how bad they're doing, Jesus was still amongst them. Even though most of them, if they were to continue their ways, would become enemies of Jesus. And yes, this is like one last warning. This is, this is, like they're in a bad place. But nonetheless, Jesus was still amongst them at this point. And so while we may be disillusioned by the brokenness of the church, we cannot give away to despair. What we see in the church nowadays that I talked about at the beginning, those things aren't new. You know, down to even the divisiveness of the church, that may be what we see in the Chinese church. Many New Testament letters were actually written by Paul because there was a cultural gap occurring between the Jews and the newly converted Gentiles. The, the, the disunity was actually so great that in the letter to Galatians, Peter talked about the time where he had to reprimand, I mean, Paul had to rep, talk about the time where he had to reprimand Peter because Peter refused to eat with the dirty Gentiles and only wanted to hang out with the Jewish Christians. Even Peter fell into this. 
Disunity was present in the earliest iteration of the church. In the New Testament letters, Paul also had to address situations where there were false teachers leading people astray, which is honestly kind of at the heart of of Trump evangelicalism. There was even celebrity preaching where people just like flocked to a certain celebrity or celebrity preacher, which I think we see a lot in, in the modern day church. In the letter to Corinthians, people got, it was written because people were getting into disputes about being Camp Apollo or Camp Paul. And yet, from these broken churches that we read about in the New Testament, God creates a worldwide religion. You see, God has eyes like the flame of fire, eyes that see everything. He sees all of the brokenness in the church that we haven't even uncovered yet. He's not delusioned. He's never been. Because he always saw the reality of the church before him. And instead of forsaking this church, he does the complete opposite. He does the most paradoxical, confusing, nonsensical thing, and he places his very own terrifying image, name, and kingdom into the hands of this broken church into the hands of us. He chose us. I went on a mental health leave uh, after an incredibly challenging first few years of ministry. This is what I talked about in my my last kind of, uh, some of the challenges in my last sermon here. And when I returned, the Lord placed it actually on my heart to share my my story with my youth or parts of my story. And I was really worried. So I was like, like, can they handle this? Like, what if I lead people astray by sharing about the church's brokenness? What if I lead people to disillusionment, to despair? And what God told me was, it is better they learn how to love unconditionally the church in all of her reality than to be sheltered from her truths and to only know how to love her when she is perfect. This is a shallow false love. You see, disillusionment, it's it's actually an opportunity for growth, for maturity. To see the church as she is, to see the church as God sees it, and then to still choose love. To see the church as God sees it and to still have hope. And within this narrative of love and hope, there is room for grief, lament, for anger, because you will hear it in Jesus' voice in those letters to the churches. Christ's unconditional love is complex. It is nuanced. That within the hands of love, you can also hold grief and anger, frustration, wrestling. But what it does not include is despair, hopelessness. For there is hope. A hope not in the church, but in the fact that our God is terrifying and he is for us. Let's pray. God, just as we heard in this message and even in the worship, you're not safe. You're terrifyingly powerful. But with that comes so much reassurance. 
For if you're with us, who can stand against us? That we can be strong and courageous. That you met us even in our sins and still chose us. There is so much security, so much reassurance, so much grace. In the hope of your power, but also in, in, in the mercy of your love. That you saw us for who we are and still chose us. And so I just pray, Lord, for those of us who, who are wrestling with that disillusionment, that you will empower us. The first fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. We pray for a divine love. Because to see the church as she is, I just think it's impossible out of human strength to love her. And so we're asking not for human strength, but for divine one. That you give us the eyes to see what you see, but the heart to love the way you love. That you give us hope and that our faith will be one of certainty. That you, all, your, all of your promises are yes and amen in you. And so I pray that as uh, Lord's Love Church does your ministry, as they are your salt and, and light into this world, that they can have hope knowing that you have sent them, that you are with them, that you're empowering them, that the terrified God is with them and for them. May you help them to choose you and choose the church. I pray for all this in your holy name. Amen.